Heavenly Father, thank you for the provision of a facility, Father, and thank you for the way all the details and arrangements were made so that we could continue in this course tonight, so that uh, we can put our attention where it needs to be, into the study of your word. Let us be attentive to what you teach. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Chapters 21 through 28, as you remember last week I said this, are the part of the book in which Paul is in captivity, essentially. And he is never not in captivity through this entire sequence, through the end of the book. We move from captivity in Jerusalem to captivity in Caesarea to captivity in Rome. Last week we were in Jerusalem. Today we begin there, but before the night's over, we will end in Caesarea. From there, we'll see him move out of Caesarea into eventually Rome. So let's go to the beginning of chapter 22, where we start tonight. Just to reset for you, Paul is being held as a prisoner by Roman authorities now in Jerusalem. Remember, he was standing on the stairway, or is standing on the stairway, between the outer court and the Antonian fortress, which is part of the Temple Mount. He was under attack by the crowd of Jews at the temple because they had seen him, recognized him as the one who had been teaching to the Gentiles, and there was a riot of sorts that broke out as the Jews in the temple tried to kill Paul. The Romans rescued him, and as they were carrying him out of the outer court, he asked permission to speak to the crowd, and the Roman centurion granted that permission, probably because he hoped Paul would say something to explain the situation. So the Roman centurion was interested in hearing what Paul had to say as well, thinking that it might explain something about what's going on. But Paul begins to speak here in chapter 22 in Hebrew, which means the Romans are not going to be able to understand what he says, which later becomes an important detail to the story. There's some disagreement within the text that you can find. Some of the manuscripts say Aramaic, but it becomes apparent later that he's speaking in Hebrew by what you see happen with the Roman soldiers. So we'll see that in a minute. So begin in chapter 22, verse 1, with Paul beginning to make this speech to the Jews in the temple. Verse 1, he says, Brethren and fathers... Hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as y'all are today. <laughs> Little bit of text in him, Paul. I persecuted this way to the death binding and putting both men and women into prisons, and as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. He begins his address here with these respectful words spoken in Hebrew, all for the sake of gaining the attention of the Jews in the temple. He's also speaking in Hebrew to hide his conversation from the Romans. This is no accident. He could have spoken in Aramaic, and Paul has selectively chosen to speak in a way in which the Roman soldiers will not know what he's saying. And you notice when he starts speaking in Hebrew, what does the crowd do? They become even more quiet. They recognize that he's speaking to them in a way that the Romans will not understand, and they're wondering why. It's a private moment of sorts. Now, Paul in this brief section gives a little bit of his background story. First, he says, I am a Jew. Now, we know Paul has written in a, in a previous day uh, in the book of Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, free man nor slave. And he did that in, in a particular context. But here we have evidence 
to understand that whatever Paul said in Galatians, what he did not mean is he stopped being a Jew. For he identifies himself as such here to this crowd. And that is self-evident. That's an easy thing to understand when you look at the rest of what Paul says in Galatians. He starts with Jew versus Greek, but then he goes to male versus female. Well, clearly, after I came to faith, I was still a man. And likewise, women who come to faith are still women. We don't lose the distinction. But the point in Galatians is there's no greater preference in God's economy for one of those groups versus another. We're all the same in that sense. But those personal distinctions don't go away. And here he illustrates for the sake of this crowd that he is still considering himself to be a Jew. He is a Jew. He's born a Jew and he will always be a Jew. As such, he is the remnant of Israel in the fact that he's come to faith. He says he was born outside Judea, but came to Jerusalem as a young boy and studied under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. And that his training was according to the strictest traditions, which meant he was pharisaical. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul is arguing with all of this background, that he's just like them. I am just like you. I am similar to you. I'm zealous for God as you are. What he's doing here in the moment, of course, is he's defending himself. But think about it. Does Paul need to defend himself against these people? He's already in captivity. He actually had to ask the Romans for permission to stop and make this defense. It wasn't something he was required to do. Now he's choosing to do it in Hebrew, so it's clearly not for the Romans' sake that he's doing it. The people who are holding him right now are the Romans. They're the ones he needs to defend himself against, in a sense. What's he doing in reality? He's witnessing. The intent here is to get an audience to the Jew while under the protection of the Romans. The Jews can't hurt him while he's under Roman protection. What a perfect opportunity to witness to the Jews while they can't do anything about it and while they're interested to hear what he has to say. So this is a wonderful example or a model of how to witness to a somewhat if not outright, hostile crowd. And there is a model here. I'm not saying it's going to work in every case. You can't evangelize from that point of view. It doesn't work that way. But there are good techniques. There are ways in which we can approach people that are more effective than others. Here's one example in which we can learn a few things. Paul's beginning approach is to say, I'm just like you. And in a truthful sense, that can be said about us with regard to the people we meet. This is the natural starting point for any testimony concerning faith in the gospel. It helps people to understand the message we have if we begin by explaining to them that we were once just like them. That our beginnings were no different than their beginnings. It didn't require that I be smarter or that I have some special advantage for why I am who I am now. I started just like you did. Paul's message is a little different than that. He's trying to build some credibility here. That's a part of it for him as well. But you should also see it from this evangelistic point of view. Then he goes a step further and he reminds them that he himself persecuted the way, which was how Christianity was commonly referred to in that day. He persecuted Christians to the death, he says. And he even went so far as to leave the city of Jerusalem to find Christians if they weren't enough in the city to persecute. That's literally how Paul saw his duty. He said, there's still some out there. Well, then I'm going to go find them and persecute them. He's seeking a kind of street cred with the Jewish leadership who in this moment are working very hard on their own to persecute Christians, Paul being one of them, of course. And so he he would expect his crowd will appreciate the significance of what he's about to say next. And what he says next is, Paul was the one who hated Christians more than anyone else in his day. It's all the more astounding then when he tells them, that now he is working for the glory of God in converting people to Christianity. 
which gives so much drama to his story and power and credibility to his witness. That's also an important feature in an effective Christian testimony. Now, not all of us have a Pauline-like conversion. But even just short of that, even if we weren't the killers that these men were, we all have our story. And if we minimize, even inadvertently, even maybe subconsciously, if we minimize the extent of our sinfulness in the life we lived prior to faith, we are diminishing God's glory when we get to the other side of the story and talk about our redemption. By making ourselves even inadvertently seem a little less sinful, a little more like a Christian from the start, then it's that much smaller of a jump when you tell the person now you are who you are. They don't see the drama of it like they need to because the reality is we were a lot worse than we might imagine ourselves to have been, than we remember ourselves to have been, perhaps. Instead, we should make clear that grace was our only hope, for we were far from the glory of God. What Paul is doing is establishing credibility with a crowd who hates him for what he's doing, so that when he explains what he's doing, he might have a hope to show them that it was the right thing. But I see an application opportunity in in asking ourselves, if we were in Paul's situation today, in some relative way, what would our approach be to testifying or defending ourselves? I don't see a better way than just following Paul's model. We just need to apply it to our own circumstance. Look at what Paul does next in this in this moment and in this model. He gives testimony that we've heard actually earlier in the book of Acts. So we'll just be a reminder here. Verse six, he says, but it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime and a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul's testimony of conversion is familiar to us. There are a few details that are new here from how Paul relates it compared to what we saw earlier in the book of Acts. He begins on the road, of course, on the way to Damascus. We know this outline. Paul tells us the timing was noon. Now, that's an interesting detail because what it suggests is that the brightness of Christ exceeded the brightness of a noonday sun in the desert. That's hard to imagine. In verse 14, Paul says he had the privilege to have been appointed to know God's will, see the Lord, and hear him speak. The statement made an impression on me for the significance of what it will mean to be in the Lord's presence. That it took an appointment from God, one that was considered of great privilege, as obvious by the way Paul describes it, to not only be impressed with the will of God, to know his will, but to have seen him, Remember, Christ himself in the flesh had disappeared from the earth, so he reappeared for the sake of Paul in that moment. And then lastly, to even hear his voice was considered of highest privilege for Paul. 
So clearly what Paul here was interested in doing was telling his story of conversion because it was a story of God's mercy on a sinful man. Not all of us have the road on Damascus moment. Not all of us have that that immediate, obvious moment. Some of us do. And to those who do, count that a blessing and use it to its utmost. If I had that kind of a moment in my own experience, I would be using it constantly because what a great opportunity to talk about the changed man, changed woman that Christ creates. If you don't have that, if you're like me and you know of a phase or a period in your life in which things were happening and you know, knowledge was being accumulated and thoughts were changing, and then at somewhere near the end of that, you had a realization about what had happened and that you did see and think differently than before. Usually that's followed or should be followed by a baptism moment in which you get to confirm all of that for your own sake, if not anyone else's. But in the process of getting there, it's a little muddy. Well, that's still a testimony, and there's still plenty of ways to take that story and give God glory through it. But again, if you have a Pauline-like moment in any sense, take full advantage of it. That's a wonderful opportunity. First point in Paul's telling of this story was to reflect God's mercy. Secondly, his testimony, it validates his claim that he was entrusted with God's message of salvation. You see, he's moving off of, here's who I am, to here's what I've been given. And he started that turn when he said that it was a, he was appointed to know his will. And with that new knowledge came a new mission. And that's the finishing part of his testimony here when Paul says that now he is to get up and go. The final verse I want to mention something about because I know it's a source of some controversy. And some of you may have had the same question just looking at the text tonight. Some wonder why Paul was told to wash away his sins through baptism, or at least that's what it appears to suggest. Now, as usual, in a case like this, the confusion lies in the translation from Greek, in this case, to English. In the Greek construction, there are two pairings and those pairs are separated from one another grammatically. So the first pairing is getting up or rising up or arise, depending on how your book translates it. That statement is paired with be baptized. Stand up, be baptized. Paul was commanded, in other words, to be baptized as soon as he could get off the ground from this salvation moment, from the moment his eyes were opened and he came into this new awareness. And Ananias has commanded him essentially to do as God says in the scripture, get up now and be baptized. Don't delay. All believers are similarly commanded, by the way, to move into baptism immediately after faith. Then, secondly, the second pairing in the later half of the sentence. Wash away your sins, having called on his name. So calling on the name of the Lord is paired with a washing away of sins. So as Paul called on the name of the Lord, this would be a way of saying as he confessed Christ, he was experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a washing of sins by faith. So they're in the reverse order from how we would typically lay out a call of the gospel. We would say, believe in the name of Christ and be saved, and then let's go and let's be baptized. The pairings are the same. We, we just see them reversed here. Let's get up and be baptized because you call on the name of the Lord and you've seen your sins washed away. Verse 17, let's see how he finishes his statement. He says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste, And get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, 
they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul now tells of what happened when he moved to Jerusalem. We studied this in Acts 9. Paul had visited Jerusalem after he was brought out of Damascus and after he had had his conversion and, and his salvation experience. Remember, we talked about how he walked in, came into Jerusalem and everyone was a little wary of this. Paul used to be Saul, you know, the guy that, that had persecuted us last time we saw him. But then he starts to go into the synagogues and preach boldly and defend Christ. And, and all this, the Jewish leaders had tried to refute his claims and he had defeated them all and rhetorically defeated them all. In Acts 9, 29 through 30, we read briefly that Paul was actually endangered by some Jews who were conspiring to kill him. And as a result of that conspiracy, Paul is quickly ushered out of Jerusalem for his safety. And Paul now gives us detail on what was going on at that moment. He relates here how the Lord and had revealed to him this need to flee. And then in a very interesting way, and I find this actually quite comical in a sense, Paul relates how he reasoned with the Lord that these people could be converted. In other words, he's arguing with Christ over what Christ is saying. And Paul's logic here is very interesting for why he says or why he thinks he could be successful in converting these Jewish leaders. He recounts how in his own mind he had assumed that the, the Jews would come to faith because of his own history. He had this testimony, in other words. He's saying to, to Jesus in so many words, I have this powerful history, powerful testimony. It's my secret weapon. When I step in and tell these people about what I used to be, they'll remember all that. They'll remember who I used to be. And now when I show them what I am now and how it's changed and why, that will be so compelling. They won't have a hope but to believe because... I can have this, this effect on them. It's as if Paul's suggesting here that Jesus is given up too easily on these people. And if he just lets Paul have a little longer, he can, he can pull it off. They'll eventually come around. Paul was wrong. In thinking he could convert Jews, Paul didn't understand what he later understands and understands so well that he writes to us about it in Romans 9, 10, 11. Right? This is an interesting character study in its own right. Here's Paul relating how a young, immature Christian Paul was willing to tell the Lord that he could do something that the Lord himself was saying wasn't going to happen. And then later, the mature Apostle Paul is able to write to the rest of the church and explain why it was, in fact, not going to happen, that the Jews have been hardened for a time and there would not be mass Jewish, Jewish evangelism possible, whether then or now. Only a remnant is going to receive the gospel until God permits otherwise. Apart from all of that, Paul clearly spells out here that his commission is to take the gospel far and wide. And this is the moment in which it's made clear to him from Christ that that is his mission. He was called to the Gentiles far and wide, not just to go back to Israel. Paul mentions here going to the Gentiles. And he must have known that as he uttered that, it would generate an uproar in the Jewish crowd. In keeping with the fact that he chose to speak in Hebrew so as to hide this from the Romans, while still gaining their protection and allowing him to make these statements without fear of, of getting killed. At the moment he says Gentile, verse 22, we see what happens. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Verse 23, And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, can you just see the scene here? 
The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting out against him that way. So there's the statement you can point to to say the Romans didn't understand this language. It's the Hebrew language. When they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. It was blasphemy to the Jewish ears to hear Paul suggest that the Lord appeared to him and told him to go to Gentiles. To suggest that the God of Israel would ever ask for anything good to be done to the Gentiles was blaspheming in and of itself. So they they wouldn't even get past the thought of God asking for something good to be given to Gentiles. That was their proof that Paul was a liar. So they call for Paul to be put to death and the riot resumes. And now you have this Roman cohort who's not only a bit fearful of what might be developing in front of him, but now he's angry at Paul because it's, it's clear probably at this point that Paul has abused their grace and has used them in some sense to get what he wanted. And now they have even more anger directed toward Paul for why he has set them up in this way. And so he drags him in and says, we're going to whip you until you tell us what this is all about. And that's a pretty severe penalty here. People died from scourging quite easily, in fact. And it could have been the case that they were going to whip him until he either spoke or died. But now looking at it from Paul's point of view, he's obviously orchestrating the entire situation. Because Paul knew that the moment he revealed that he was a Roman citizen, then that would change everything and his relationship with these Roman authorities. They would not entertain any more of these shenanigans. If he was a Roman citizen, they were going to pull him entirely out of this Jewish context and try to understand if there was any charge against him. And if there was, then a whole bunch of due process would attach. And then there would be a lot of other authorities involved. And so uh, Paul knew that's what would happen, and he's delaying that as long as he possibly can. Roman citizens enjoyed a degree of protection under law similar, if not greater, to the ones we enjoy as a U.S. citizen today. Paul could not, as a Roman citizen, receive any punishment without due process, which means trial and, and conviction. And it was always illegal to scourge a Roman citizen under any circumstances. And to hold him in chains was also against Roman law unless he had been indicted for serious offense. These are similar in many respects to the kinds of rule of law that we have today, habeas corpus and the right not to incriminate yourself and so on and so forth. So Paul here has carefully timed his revelation that he is a Roman citizen until the moment right before he has to pay the penalty for his silence, but long enough so that there is already some culpability for the Roman authorities and now they are beholden to him at least to some extent because they've already gone past the point they should have and in so doing, he could get them in trouble. Paul's been very careful about this. So he asked this great question. By the way, uh, just before you whip me, I just have a little point of order here. Uh, is it illegal to whip a Roman citizen? Just checking. I love the way he does this. He asks it in this casual little rhetorical style. Instead of just saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. He does it in such a way that it will embarrass them. 
and it has the effect that he wanted. The centurion immediately stops. Now, you've got the low guy on the totem pole about to do the wrong thing. He's not going to do it unless he's sure that his boss is fully aware of what is about to happen because he knows he'll be the one who gets the most trouble. So he stops. He goes all the way back to his captain and says, what are we doing here? This guy's a Roman citizen. We can't be doing this. The captain now goes to Paul to challenge this because he's not sure this could be true. He knows that Paul's Jewish. He found him in a Jewish temple. What are the odds that he's truly a Roman citizen? Now, in Paul's day, in this time and age, there were three ways you could be a Roman citizen. You could receive it by an imperial decree from the emperor as a result of service to the empire. Usually that meant many, many years of service, for example, in the military or as a builder. Doing something great and laudable, you might then be rewarded for all those years of service by receiving your citizenship late in life, long after you really would have liked to have had it. Uh, You could get it in the way that you see this captain declaring that he received it. A large sum of money is paid, and they were very, very expensive to buy a Roman citizenship because they were very valuable. People wanted them, and the ones who could award it knew that, and so they held back on the award until you made the price worth their while. Getting that much money meant you typically had to work a long time to earn it. So again, it came late in life. The only way you could receive Roman citizenship and have it for the benefit of your entire life is to have been born a Roman citizen which means you either had to be born in a city that was a Roman colony, a Roman possession, and there weren't a lot of those outside of Rome proper, or if you weren't born in a Roman colony, you were born to Roman parents who qualified themselves to pass on that Roman citizenship to their children. Since Paul was born in Tarsus, Tarsus not being a Roman colony but a free city, he must have been born to Roman parents. That's the only way he could have had this decree. They would have had a birth certificate with that designation, and he would have carried it with him everywhere he went because that would have been the only way for him to prove his statement. So Paul would have had some proof on hand. He would have shown that proof, presumably. And as a, birth, a Roman citizen from birth, he had the highest order, if you will. He had the most, uh, most valuable form of Roman citizenship. And this is obviously enough to impress the Roman captain. Now the commander, or this captain, is in a pickle. He, he is vulnerable to Paul since he put Paul in chains and threatened to whip him. So Paul has something hanging over his head. He could make life difficult for this captain if that mistake was reported. But yet, on the other hand, he can't let go of Paul and just say, let's forget the whole thing. Probably for reasons of pride. There's probably an element of pride in this. He feels you know, fooled by Paul and doesn't like that. But also for order's sake. You know, if a riot breaks out and a man is, is killed by mob violence in the temple, that reflects poorly on the captain whose job it is to keep order. So he's not necessarily looking to let Paul go at this point either. So he devises another plan. He says, I'll let the Jews manage this problem for themselves. Let's put Paul on trial with the Jewish council. That's a a way of doing this orderly. So he assembles the council for a hearing on the matter of Paul. And the council here would have been mostly Sadducees with a Pharisee minority. Think of it like political parties and the Sadducees are in power at this stage in history. So in verse 1 of chapter 23, we look at the council meeting here. Paul is going to get off to a bad start here with the high priest. Verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
So Paul's opening remark about himself brings this swift and painful rebuke from the high priest. Ananias here commands one of the Jewish attendants standing next to Paul to strike him in the mouth. And what that must have meant, obviously, is they felt Paul was being presumptuous to state that about himself, that it was clear to everyone else in the room Paul had a lot of things to answer for. So how dare he try to pass it off so easily? Now, Ananias is a particularly bad sort. We know a lot about this man from Josephus. He was insolent, according to Josephus, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. He stole the tithes that were to go to the priests in the temple. He conspired in a couple of cases to instigate violence in the city of Jerusalem for his own political benefit. He maintained his grip on power as a high priest because of his pro-Rome stance. So he ingratiated himself to the Roman authorities. Eventually, he was hated so much by the people that he was killed by zealots in A.D. 66 when he was found hiding in an aqueduct from the zealot revolt in that time. After being struck here in the moment, Paul responds here in anger and indignation, and I guess who could blame him? He calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, which is similar to the term Jesus used for the Pharisees, if you remember. What he's actually saying is the high priest was clean only on the outside, not on the inside. And Paul rightly points out that when they struck him in the mouth in this way, that was a violation of law in and of itself. It was a violation of judicial procedure to hit the accused in the courtroom. And therefore, the one who would strike the supposed lawbreaker was himself a lawbreaker. And so Paul is talking to Ananias when he says, you would dare strike me for violating the law and in so doing violate the law? Pointing out his hypocrisy. First, they correct him. Now, I want you to note here, Paul respects the correction. Paul acknowledges from Scripture that there is honor due the position regardless of the man who fills it. And Scripture has commanded us, in his case, commanded Paul and the Jewish people to have that respect. That requirement from Scripture extends beyond Paul and extends beyond the law and the high priest. Paul himself writes that in Romans when he writes that we are to respect the government authorities that we are under. So Paul is the first one to acknowledge, oh, you know what, you're right. He did the wrong thing, but that doesn't mean I should call him a whitewashed wall in response because I'm to respect him even when he does the wrong thing. And you notice it's never a matter of whether they're doing the right thing or not. That's not the test. The test is who they are in terms of their position, not what they do while they're in the position. And in, in, in that way, it's a test of our obedience to God's word, not, our, not a test of our allegiance to these leaders that's at stake. Paul now acknowledges his mistake and does so from Scripture. And in his defense, he says, I was unaware that this man was a high priest and therefore did not know I needed to show this respect. Now, how does Paul not know this man is the high priest? Typically, a kind of garb that was unique to the high priest, if he was wearing it, everyone would know who he was. One answer, at least, is that this council appears to have been called so quickly by the commander and by the captain that none of the participants had time to prepare for it or even dress properly for it. It might have been called in the span of just a few minutes. He might have sent out the word and said, assemble everybody. Remember, at this moment, they're all still in the temple, by and large. Many of them, anyway. They would have been called to this moment. Paul has been out of the city a long time, many uh, years at this point. The high priest has changed twice. Historically, it changed twice in the time between when Paul was last in Jerusalem and when he comes back. It's probably the case he just didn't recognize the man. He had no reason to know who he was. He had never seen him before. Now we're treated to one of Paul's most clever manipulation of his enemies as he stands before this council. In verse 6, But perceiving that one group 
within the council were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. I love it because I just see this happening, right? All of a sudden, he's just hit their little hot button and he's set back now and he's just rocking in his chair, letting the fight start. Paul claims his affiliation with the Pharisees, the Pharisaical party. That was his claim from his past days. And then he proclaims that he has been that he's found himself in this position on trial because he preaches the hope of resurrection. And this is so clever because Paul's saying something that is essentially true on the one hand, because he's acknowledging that is what the gospel ultimately comes down to. Our hope of resurrection as Christ himself provides it through his own resurrection. But in using that phraseology, he knows he's going to turn the Pharisees within this council against the Sadducees. And Luke, as he explains it here, says the, the Sadducees do not accept certain realities out of Scripture. They were the, the equivalent of a liberal party in their day. And as liberals uh, in general are prone to do, they tend to move away from orthodoxy, away from strict interpretation, away from codes and letters of law, and into something uh, somewhat removed from that. And typical to that, in this case, the Sadducees had moved away a strict view of, the, of, of life after death, of the physical resurrection of a new body. They saw it uh, as something otherwise. And they also denied the reality of spirit, of spirits like demons and angels, and specifically of angels. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, accepted all those things. And they, they were always at odds over these differences. It was a long-standing dispute. He knew his statement would pour salt in this wound and start these two groups fighting. Now, when the Pharisees hear this and begin to see the Sadducees as the cause for Paul's arrest and for this trial, they now side with Paul. They immediately run to Paul's side and to his defense because Paul's one of them and they, he has essentially put himself in their camp. And so they see him now as an ally and they declare Paul has done nothing wrong. They offer defense on Paul's behalf. They say that his unbelievable claims, all his preaching and all that he's done, Maybe all of that was delivered to him by an angel. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So for them, this is just sticking the knife in a little bit. If Paul had been a Sadducee, then he wouldn't have had nearly the leverage that he had in this case, because to align himself with the Sadducees wouldn't have gained any benefit in the room. The Sadducees already have control over the whole situation. It might have gained him a little sympathy, but it wouldn't have. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, the minority party would have had no advantage over that. But when you're the minority party, you seek the advantage at every turn. You're looking for anything to gain an upper hand on the stronger party. So by Paul appealing to them, he had an instant ally that was going to work hard on his behalf because they saw it as their own benefit in undermining the Sadducees in this moment. I mean, that's what, that's what uh, minority parties do. They look to undermine the strength of the majority at every turn. Verse 10, this is the result. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. So, so much for plan B. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, Paul's side, and said, take courage, 
For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. The Romans rescued Paul out of that melee. And now it's led to something much more serious, something that really could get the captain into serious trouble. There's a conspiracy afoot to kill Paul. And the Lord comes to Paul in that night, letting him know that he must go to Rome and that he was no longer going to be a witness in Jerusalem, which... Uh, gives Paul a, a better understanding of why what happens next happens. God has arranged it for the Romans, the Roman army particularly, to provide free guarded transportation for, Rome, for Paul all the way to Rome. And in that guarded way, Paul will continue to be able to do what he wants because what he does does not offend the Romans whatsoever. And the ones he's worried about now, the ones who've been stirred up for decades and have now reached the breaking point, the Jews in other words, they are going to be prevented from taking action against Paul. None of these conspiracies ever work. And so Paul now has this protective accompaniment among Roman soldiers or made up of Roman soldiers that allow him to move where he wants to go, which is Rome, under protection and able to, to do his witnessing all the way along. You're going to see that as we go through the text. He even gets a chance to stop and greet people along the way and exchange letters. The Romans do not restrict him from all that much. When he's in Rome, eventually, he's in house arrest for a few years and gets to have visitors. In this particular conspiracy, you see 40 Jews conspire this oath. The literal meaning of the word of oath here in Greek is curse. What they're saying is they themselves will be subject to a curse if they do not perform this act that they are planning to perform. And they name the curse. The curse is they will not be able to eat or drink. It's a curse in the sense that if they fail to keep their promise, they aren't going to eat and drink. That's a bad curse. That means you die. So... It also suggests that they're going to act quickly, that they've forced themselves to a quick timetable by this very rash oath. We know the conspiracy failed, of course, so what happened to the conspirators? Typically, men like this would have been released from their vow by the Sanhedrin on the basis of a loophole that had been created called constraint. And the constraint loophole was the impossibility of fulfilling the vow would relieve you from the responsibility of having taken it which is typical, right? Just like their dealings with the law and with tradition generally, Jewish leadership would bend or ignore rules whenever it suited them. Verse 16 of chapter 23. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, stepping aside, began to inquire of him uh, privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who, uh, who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. 
You know, Paul couldn't have afforded that kind of an escort, much less something to sit on. A horse. He gets his own horse. Paul had to do all that by foot last time. Interesting note here. We notice Paul has a sister living in Jerusalem. She may have been the place where Paul stayed when he came to the city in many cases or where he lived when he was sitting with Gamaliel. That sister had a son and that nephew of Paul becomes aware of this plot. Based on verse 19, this must have been a fairly young boy. You see the commander taking him by the hand. You wouldn't do that with an adult, probably. So it's likely he was a young boy. And that would also explain perhaps why he heard of the plot. He may have been present when it was being constructed. He may have heard it or overheard it. And his young age would have led them to ignore him, to ignore his presence. But the boy understood the seriousness. Obviously, he knew Paul, so he had a vested interest. And he went to Paul with the story. And Paul then said, here, you need to go take this to the commander. It's easy to see God's hand, I think, in these circumstances and the way he puts this young boy in the middle of this moment, lets him hear the story, gives some way for the uh, conspirators to be thwarted, Paul's enemies to be thwarted, and interestingly, using children to do that work in this case. I find moments like this in Scripture to be very encouraging to me because they remind me the Lord works through everything and everyone to bring about good purposes in our lives. He sends friends, right, with a word or neighbors or strangers even. Uh, He places information in our path in a variety of ways. He reveals his will and shows our sin In fact, from the mouth of babes sometimes. But the key is you have to be attentive to that work. You have to be willing to acknowledge those kinds of methods are at play. God, it works in those ways to communicate to us. It's not merely the strict text of the page of the Bible that speaks to us and the spirit through that text, though that's true as well. It's in the everyday moments of our life, God is also speaking and working with us. And I find the more I think like that, the more attentive I am to even small issues in life, the closer I am to knowing what God's at work doing in my life. And I'm able to join him in it. There have been points in time when I've even been rushing to get somewhere and I, hit, I seem to hit every red light. And I keep telling myself, well, these are even details of life at that, of that type, of that insignificance are still in God's control. Why is he slowing me down? Maybe I'm about to speed through a speed trap and get in trouble. Maybe I'm about to hit a kid crossing a crosswalk. Or maybe I just need to notice something in my surroundings that I'm supposed to see. You know, things like that come to mind. Not enough, but they do. And it's amazing to me how often when that happens, when my mind opens to what God is at work doing, I'll notice what he's really trying to show me. And I'm convinced that's happening more than I'm recognizing that it's happening. It's a matter of attentiveness. In this case, the need to act was obvious, but Paul could have done the wrong thing here too. And this is another corollary for us, another way to take this for our own sake. Paul could have easily dismissed the boy's revelation that there was this conspiracy Paul could have easily have just said, okay, dear boy, don't worry. God's got this under control. He's going to take care of everything. Forgetting that, well, this is the way he's taking care of it. You're supposed to go with this now and do something so he can do what he's planning. This is his provision. That's how Paul perceived this. He said, hey, here's a way out. Let's use it. God's at work. What are the odds my nephew would have heard this story? This has got to be God. And then ultimately the captain decides he needs to do something about this. He takes a contingent of, if you count them up, 470 soldiers. And leaves in the third hour of the night, which would have been between 9 and 10 p.m. So there's no, no lack of haste here. Get them out of town. Take the whole army with you if you have to. Get them out of here and send them to Felix. Felix was a governor. He lived in Caesarea, which was the capital seat, the provincial seat. Uh, at the time that Jesus was walked the earth, that, that man would have punched his pilot. Now it's Felix. Later, before Paul dies, it's going to change again to Festus. Ultimately, Paul is in Roman custody, as I said, for nine years. Verse 25, and we'll end the chapter. And he wrote a letter having this form. This is what the captain wrote to explain that he was sending this man, Paul, 
to Felix. He says, Claudius, Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And waiting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. You've got to love this captain. He is a politician, and he writes this letter to explain what he's doing, and he writes it to Felix. Let's just take a few seconds on Felix and then finish by looking at what this captain has done in his letter. Felix's family has an interesting history. Both he and his brother were famous members of Roman society, and they were famous in particular because of how they rose up. They had been slaves, both of them originally, but they became freemen under Claudius the emperor. And Felix was a childhood friend of the emperor. So Felix was the slave. Claudius was the future emperor. They were friends. Claudius becomes emperor and takes his friend out of slavery and makes him a free man. Just seven years later, Felix has moved from slave to procurator of Judea in seven years. But that quick rise left him ill-prepared for the responsibilities of his office. Historians of the time record that he exercised the power of the king with the mind of a slave. He was also a man of lust. He had three wives at this point. He'll get a fourth later. He married into a family of despots. In fact, his father-in-law, one of his father-in-laws, was the man who killed the Apostle James and imprisoned Peter. Felix himself was later, uh, or later had uh, one of the high priests of Israel assassinated for political purposes. So this is the kind of man that we're dealing with here in Felix. The letter, as it's written here by the captain, defends Paul and explains his transfer as a protective act. Did you catch that? We rescued him when we found out he was a Roman. No, you almost beat him until you found out he was a Roman. Captain also said here that Paul's accusers are going to travel to Caesarea and they're going to make their case. So there's a trial coming. And those from Jerusalem who were accusing Paul have been told they need to come up and visit Felix as well. Verse 31, so the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. By the way, this march to Antipatris was 35 miles, then they would have had to go further than that. But that's past the point of the mountains around Jerusalem, so you were no longer in the threat of ambush. You were now in a wide open plain, and it was a much easier place to defend, so you could get most of the army and let them go at that point and just have the horsemen. When he arrives, he goes to this meeting with Felix, of course. And Felix asks, where are you from? Because Felix's jurisdiction only included certain areas. And if he hadn't been from one of those areas, Felix couldn't have done anything with him. He would have had to move him somewhere else. As it turns out, Tarsus is part of one of the areas of Felix's jurisdiction. So he says, when your accusers show up, we'll do the trial. And as you probably can expect or assume, when we get to chapter 24, we're looking at the trial again. Father, thank you for the opportunity to see so much in a story, Father, that may have promised to hold so little for us personally. But of course, your scriptures, Father, are written for us. And so there's always more there than we expect. I pray, Father, that whatever each of us saw, it was just what we wanted and needed for for our own sake, so that we may follow and obey more uh, with greater fervor, greater dedication. Thank you, Father, that we found our way here, and I pray that we would uh, continue to see our study flourish in this new location for the time that remains. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.